People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. A new book has just been released called Place, South African Literary Journeys by Justin Fox. And listen to this. Let us then set off together on a series of journeys around South Africa with an old kit bag full of books instead of maps to guide us. Let us follow meandering paths through the landscapes of literature and celebrate how local authors, characters and readers are shaped and inspired by place. Now, that gives you an idea of what this is. This gripping travelogue, Justin Fox goes on a -a one-of-a-kind tour, marrying his love for travel and writing. He sets off to explore the places of his favorite books. And Justin Fox is a travel writer, novelist, poet, and photographer, and also the former editor of Getaway magazine. And he's traveled apparently the length and breadth of Africa, although he received his doctorate in English at Oxford, and then was a research fellow at the University of Cape Town. So, Justin, welcome after that glittering introduction. Thank you so much. Good to be on the show, Rodney. Well, it's good to have you here. And I want to just say it it struck me as a a genius idea. How did you come up with this idea of going to all these places all around South Africa and wanting to soak up what the authors saw and felt and smelt and ate Rodney, I suppose it's a product of being a travel magazine journalist for 25 years. Uh, You're always looking for interesting, new, creative ways to experience in various environments. And Mm. for Getaway Magazine, I was traveling all around Africa, always looking for a new angle. And having had a background in English literature, first at UCT and then later abroad, I was always reading novels and poetry about the places I was going. Um, So if I traveled to, say, for instance, the Karoo, I would kind of read a J.M. Kutsia or read an Olive Schreiner or read an Eve Palmer uh, to try and get under the skin of the landscape. And then I thought I'd try and marry these two concepts. The one is my travel writing career and the other is my more literary, more academic background. And rather use the books, even if it was a novel, as my guide is to try and see the landscape through the eyes of the author or, or the characters of the book. So this, what you say here, um, the books as opposed to maps, is quite truth. You took books with you and read the books. You probably have read them before to soak up the atmosphere of where you went. Exactly. So on, on this passenger seat in, with each journey, I'd have all the <laughs> books by that author, whether it's a J.M. Kutzier or a, an e. Olive Schreiner or a Stephen Watson, and I would then try and find the locations where the books were set, where they were written, and where the character, uh, and the environments that the characters inhabited. So it was a, quite, a, quite an, a unique and very singular way of looking at a landscape. Mm-hmm. And you've given your chapters interesting titles, Moonlight Serenade is the the chapter about Olive Schreiner's Eastern Karoo. Jock Bafok, oops, Sir Percy Pitzfatrick's Lofelt, and also things like um, The Soul of White Baboon, Eugene Marais in the Waterberg, and one that I find interesting, Fireside Anglicans, Herman Charles Bosman's Mariko, J.M. Kutsia, Alone in All the Vaxness, and Zeks Imda. So, You've really chosen the sort of creme de la creme, really, of the South African literary scene, haven't you? Rodney, I wanted to look at 150 years of South Africa and look at uh, some of the greats that represented. Each author had to represent a quite different part of the country. So I wanted to spread the love all around South Africa, the Kruger Park, the Limpopo province, the Northwest, uh, the Karoo, etc. So each author had to be a great and they had to represent a particular part of the country, and they needed to capture the landscape in a particularly unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted my readers to to know these texts so that, that they already are quite familiar with a Herman Charles Bosman kind of Wimscock Lawrence Mariko kind of landscape mm-hmm. so that they would be able to identify immediately with what I was talking about. But now here's a question. What if they haven't read that book? 
Do you think that your book will then inspire them to read the book? Yes, and that was the that was my other objective. Being oh. a, a getaway travel journalist, you're trying to have a, you have an audience of a hundred thousand people, and you have to try and appeal across the board. So I've written each chapter in a way that you don't need to have read the book because I give a little summary of the book, and a lot of it is come with me, come and experience yes. this landscape yes. through my eyes and through the book's eyes. So. No, you don't need to have read any of these books, but but it'll, you'll get more out of my book if you have. Yeah, You're, I was very moved, in fact, when you went to Olive Schreiner's grave uh, on top of a copy, was it? Yes, it's just outside Craddock, and it's in a sarcophagus that stands on top of the felt because the rock was too tough to, to be able to dig oh, a really? proper grave. Okay. So they've created this little dome sarcophagus. It's a very moving spot. You need to go. <laughs> really? Craddock sounds interesting, much more interesting than I would have thought, reading about the Olive Schreiner uh, experience. Craddock sounds, on the one hand, delightful, on the other hand, mysterious. Craddock is a very special, very beautiful town that has been incredibly well preserved, unlike many small towns in South Africa that have been a bit blighted through municipalities that have destroyed them, etc. But Craddock keeps its charm. It's a mid-19th century gem with a beautiful blend of of Victorian and Cape Dutch houses, uh, well-restored, lovely accommodation, and this wonderful Olive Schreiner Museum that that is the home of Schreiner. Yes, you actually found her home, didn't you, and went in? Yes. So the museum preserves the Shriner heritage, and then I also had a historian that took me to the ruins of the farm of a story of an African farm, which is just a few baked bricks uh, lying in the felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I could feel the spirit of Shriner there. But that's her most famous book, isn't it? The story yes. of an African farm. And it seems to have had a massive impact on you from when you first read it onwards. It's the first great South African novel, and I think every South African novelist and writer falls in in the shadow of Shriner and um, she was such a great and she was so far ahead of her time and she was a woman and she was liberal so she ticked every single box in the in the late 19th century and so for us in the early 21st century to look back at her as sort of the, the mother of South African literature yeah, I What say. I found interesting was she came from a very religious family didn't she, a very Christian family but she gradually drifted towards atheism. She had many drifts. So the one was towards atheism, certainly initially, and then she swung back to a kind of a a pantheism, a a veneration of nature, a love of the spirit world that wasn't necessarily a Christian uh, relationship, and her passion for the Karoo and for nature and for the felt, she elevated it to a form of religion. So I can imagine how you must have felt going to a house and also going to where an African farm was allegedly set. Justin, let's have your first piece of music. What have you chosen for us? Jumped off topic here, and we're dealing with a a famous Second World War song, Lily Marlene. And this version is sung by Lael Anderson in 1939. And it was the, the song that the troops in North Africa, both German and Allied, it was their kind of theme song. And it used to be played every night at 10 o'clock from Radio Belgrade, and it was broadcast across the Western Desert. And my father and my uncles, who all fought up north, they would sit in their slit trenches at night and sing along to Lily Marlene. Eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. So wollen wir uns da wieder sehen. Bei der Laterne wollen wir stehen. Wie ein Lili Beiden Schatten sahen wie einer aus, dass wir so lieb und passen, das sah man gleich daraus. Und alle Leute sollen es sehen, wenn wir bei der Laterne stehen, wie ein Lili Der Posten, die blieben Zappenstreich. Es kann drei Tage kosten, Kamerad, ich komm ja gleich. Da sagten wir auf Wiedersehen, 
Nostalgia, Lily Marlene, one of the Second World War songs. Lael, who's performing it? That's Lael Anderson. Of course, we might remember that song sung by Vera Lynn and then by Marlene Dietrich. That's but this is the But this is the original version from the early part of the war. Does that sort of era, I know you've written another book we're going to talk about in a moment, does that era interest you like the songs and literature of the wars? I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm a Second World War fanatic and have been <laughs> since I was a child. And I travel to battlefields in Europe and North Africa and I write books about it. And I, as a child, I built model airplanes and read comic books about the Second World War. So it is one of my main passions. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a moment with one of your characters, Jack Pembroke. Um, and another book you've written about that war. But let's stay with place at the moment. And by the way, why do you call it place and not places, since there are a whole lot, nine, ten places you visit? Yes, Rodney, it's a shorthand for spirits of place, or spirit of place, more exactly. Uh, which is almost like your introduction chapter. Yeah. It's the ancient Roman concept of a house or an environment having a particular quality, a particular spirit, almost a soul. And uh, and so in each of these chapters, I've tried to find the place where the spirit of a South African landscape is beautifully captured by a local author. Okay. You know, um, so we've spoken about Oral Schreiner, and there are, there are a whole lot of questions I would like to ask you. But I would like now to go to Herman Charles Bosmans and Mariko, because I remember Patrick Mainhart doing all those one-man shows of Wormskalk Lawrence. So was um, Herman Charles Bosman also uh, a hero of yours? Absolutely. I think every school child in South Africa in the old days would have read Herman Charles Bosman's stories, the Urmskalk Lawrence stories, and they're part of the South African literary landscape and culture, and partly through Patrick Maynard and many others have been venerated for decades, yeah. for nearly a century now, because many of those stories were written in the 1930s, so we're coming up to nearly 100 years. I've always loved those stories, and my uncle was the Afrikaans poet Ace Kricher, and he was very friendly with Herman Charles Bosman in Joburg in the 1940s, and they were old sparring partners. And, and so I took my mother along to the Groot Mariko to follow the footsteps of Herman Charles Bosman, and she would tell anecdotes of her brother and Herman and so on. So I had a kind of a, a personal connection for that chapter. What's it like, Groot Mariko? I mean, when you, when you read those stories, it almost seems as though you're on another planet. Ronnie, a lot of it hasn't changed that much because that area north of Zeros towards the Botswana border is still rural and f old farms and old farmhouses and marula trees. And Madikwa Game Reserve encompasses much of what would have been the farms of the Herman Charles Bosman story. So it's mm -hmm. still rustic and rural and there's still leopards sleeping under the Vitalk trees and so on. <laughs> so it's an absolutely beautiful and unspoiled part of South Africa. And he, Herman Charles Bosman, did I read in your book somewhere that he was quite a sort of 
English gentleman in many ways. Am I right or wrong? He, he was quite an English gentleman, and he did travel abroad in England and, and in France. Um, yes, so he was a bit of an English gentleman. But his real passion, certainly that comes through in his writing, was his one year that he spent in the Mariko in when he was 20 years old as a school teacher, And that left such an indelible impression that the rest of his career, he referred back continually to that one year. And most of what he wrote were short stories, weren't they? He didn't really write Correct. novels. No, they were just about all short stories or essays. In English or in Afrikaans? Always in English, although that's why I call the chapter Englikaans, because yeah. he, he <laughs> writes in English that you kind of half think it's Afrikaans. And if you try to remember a Herman Charles Bosman story, you sometimes think, hang on, was that in English or Afrikaans? He writes oh. with such an earthy Afrikaans kind of English that it's, it's this kind of strange hybrid almost somewhere between the two languages. Can you demonstrate one or is that unfair to ask you? It's unfair to ask okay, you. Okay, I, I won't ask you. Um, after all, you're not an actor, you're an author. <laughs> Correct. And then the other person, um, apart from Herman Charles Bosman, that I found very interesting was J.M. Kutsia, and you call it alone in all that vastness, Mordenai's Karoo. And when you think of J.M. Kutsia, you immediately think of that book, uh, Michael Kay, which you write about in some detail in that chapter. Another book, clearly, that had a huge impact on you. Yes, it did. As an undergrad at UCT um, in the English department, I, I did, as many of us did back in the 1980s, a course on apocalyptic fiction, and Michael Kay was one of the core texts. And I read it then. I would have been a 21-year-old student, and I thought it was the best South African novel I'd ever read. I was completely transfixed by it. And and the whole concept of this book, Place, um, in the back of my head, it was always Michael Kay was going to be the starting point. It was the trigger to go do a journey to the Karoo and try and find the places of Michael Kay. What had inspired Kutsia? Where is that farm? Where is that windmill and that little pumpkin patch that is cultivated? So I set out... And also Seapoint. And Seapoint, which... Where it I, started I li- and ended. Yeah, and I live in Willie Point on the front there. So... To retrace the footsteps of Michael Kay was that's where this novel began. Many people think of James Kutsi as a very dry academic person. I know he's very difficult to interview, all those things. And yet he wrote this. It's quite an earthy book. It's quite a revolutionary book. You're calling it one of the best books you've read of South African literature. And it's won so many awards. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely seminal and classic text and the, and the reason it keeps getting read, productions keep getting, hmm. getting put the film up, been made of it as well? I think there might have been a film. It's about to be appear in New York. It's just been in the Fringe in Edinburgh uh-huh. so it keeps coming back. It's, a, yeah. it's an absolute classic yeah. text, yeah. Now, we're going to have another of your pieces and this time I see you've chosen, well something Greek. <laughs> what is this? What are you playing us now? I'm playing you a, a tune by Manos Hajidakis, and it's called Pedia to Perea, and it's from his album The Fifteen Vespers. Now, in the 19, early 1970s, I went with my family to Greece in 1973, and my parents fell in love with this music, which was kind of Greek folk music of the 1960s. So when I think of Greece and I think of that holiday, which was a very important kind of seminal holiday for me, I think of this music. Is when the word Vesper is very often got an ecclesiastical connotation, but you say this is more like folk music. It's kind of classical Greek folk music, which was revived by Hajidakis in the 50s and 60s.
there's something different, Vespers, from a set of 15 Vespers by a Greek composer called Hadridakis. And that's possibly the first time it's ever been aired in this country, Justin. Justin Fox is my guest, and his new book, Place, South African Literary Journeys, has just been published. And we're looking at this book, and as I said at the beginning, each of the chapters is about great South African writers. Uh, we spoke about Olive Schreiner, and we also spoke about Herman Charles Bosman and Jane Kutzia. But the other one I was interested to talk to you about was Sir Percy Fit- Fitzpatrick and Jock of the Bushveld, which is a story I think so many of us know from school or films or television series. Was it something that you really felt you needed to pursue and get to the bottom of? And if so, why? Rodney, I had a Staffordshire Bull Terrier as a boy. (laughs) So I had a little jock, and his name was Asti. And so I had a passion for uh, Staffordshire Bull Terriers from the age of three or four. And so Jock of the Bushveld is the obvious book that you give a little boy who loves dogs. That's where my love of jock comes from. And so I wanted to retrace the roots of the old wagon route that the wagons would have gone from Leidenberg down through the Kruger Park to Maputo, what Lorenzo Marx in those days, and then back up to the gold fields. So for this particular book, obviously I had my Jock of the Bushfeld book with me and all the old um, the maps of the old wagon trails, and I took my sister along. We followed that route, and we met Jock aficionados along the way and people that are obsessed by Jock, and there's a Jock society, and really? uh, there are people that have put little plaques all down those r- routes so that you can follow in the footsteps. Yes, it was a fascinating, wonderful journey. Your chapter on that opens with somebody lying in bed – and a dog jumps on the bed and rubs its wet nose against him. And I was wondering when I was reading that at some speed whether that was you or whether you were talking about Jock of the Bushveld. It was me. Me as, ah. a, me as a six-year-old with my little puppy as a flashback. I also am postulating something about Percy Fitzpatrick in that he had to abandon Jock towards the end of Jock's life and send him because Jock had become deaf and was living in a city and he nearly got run over a few times and he was sent to live on a farm in Mozambique and there he was shot by a farmer by accident and I have a feeling that Jock of the Bush felt the book almost Fitzpatrick's guilt that come that he's paying tribute to the dog that he abandoned and I went off to the South African Defence Force and I kind of abandoned my dog and let my parents bring my dog up. And so I kind of relate to Fitzpatrick in that respect. And the rest of Sir Percy Fitzpatrick's writings, did he write mostly in the low felt? No. After his time as a young man doing the transport riding, he moved to Barberton for a bit and then he moved up to Johannesburg. He entered politics. He became a farmer. So he moved away from writing and, and from the Lowfelt. And so Jock is the kind of iconic text from his youth. And there's not much else that he wrote that was of particular note. No, because this, when you think of Sir Percy Fitzpatrick, you think of Jock of the Bushveld. You don't think of anything else. Yes. And his Lowfelt experiences, I mean, you certainly saw a lot of Africa. I mean, you've seen the Karoo, you went to the Lowfelt, and that area, so different from the Karoo as well, isn't it, the Lowfelt? Its own unique, I want to say, smells and sounds. Yeah, I think that was part of my objective in this book is to take the reader to very different South African landscapes. So I wanted mountains, I wanted bushveld, I wanted dense forest, I wanted coastline, I wanted barren Karoo wastelands so that the the reader can get a, a taste of all the South African types of landscapes. And you as an ex-editor of that uh, getaway magazine, you must have seen a lot of South Africa already. So these trips you made, were they to areas that you kind of knew or were they quite new? Yes. In my getaway career, I'd probably been to all of these landscapes at some stage doing some sort of story. So it was a case of returning, wearing a different set of spectacles and to try Mm. and look at each of those landscapes in a very different way, but also in much more depth than I would do for a magazine article. For each of these stories, I spent a lot of time. And in some cases, I went back two or three times, for instance, to the Cedarburg to really get under the skin of the landscape and to try and understand as best I could what had captivated each of the authors about that landscape. So how did you do that? How did you captivate? How did you discover what captivated? Did you sit 
on a bench or under a tree, pondering life's rich tapestry. I did exactly that. There was a lot of sitting on a bench <laughs> under <Pondering>. a tree. <laughs> um, no, that is that is exactly the kind of thing that you need to do as a travel journalist. You're often on the hoof. You're moving fast. You're taking photographs. You've got to do Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You've got to get the story back. You've got to take a thousand images. You've got to get a cover shot maybe. Uh, and you've got to please your sponsors who could be at the hotel or whatever. So it's fast-paced and you're grabbing s- snapshots both in your writing and in uh, and in photographically. Yeah, yes. Yeah. For something like this where it's a it's a long, slow project, it's a case of spending a week or two on location and a lot of sitting under a tree. Uh, a week or two as long as that. Yeah, yeah. And in in some case, even longer uh, with a notebook and try and feel, smell, soak up the atmosphere, be in that landscape in different light conditions at night. Yeah. So it's a much slower, more meditative, more pensive way of traveling. Mm, But must be quite pleasant. I almost called you a philosopher at the beginning by accident, but I mean, it's got a slightly philosophical feel what you did, doesn't it? Yeah, it is much more meditative and it is wonderful. And and for me, I'm normally traveling on my own, almost always. And you make a little bry fire at night and you put your bourrevors and your potatoes on and then you sit with a bottle of red wine and a notebook and you watch the sun go down and you look at the texture of light on playing on the vineyards or on the mountains and you write. And mm-hmm. it's that those kind of idle moments, even when you're a little bit bored or you had maybe two or three glasses of wine and, <laughs> and stuff starts, then stuff starts to Flowing, flow. Yeah. yeah. I must say, and this is your compliment for the day, um, you write beautifully, very, very um, realistically and very colorfully can't think of the right word. Anyway, it's beautifully written. How long did it take you to write this book? This is 15 years, this project. 15 years? Yeah, the Herman Charles Bosman chapter was written in 2008, and the Stephen Watson chapter was finished last year. So it's been a very slow, long process. I kind of almost left it a year or two between each chapter. There was a lot of research that went into it, so I, I tried to read everything that each of the authors had written, and as much as I could about them as well mm-hmm. before I even set foot in the landscape so that I went with a whole a whole lot of preconceived ideas that I would then lay upon the landscape and see if they fitted. So, yes, this is a slow, a long, slow project. Yes, not like the <laughs> pressures of editing a, a getaway magazine. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite, I was going yeah. to say. Now, here's another piece of music, Bongeziwe. Mabandla. What are we going to hear, Justin? We're going to hear a song called Ndoku Landela. Uh, Bongeziwe is a Cape Town slash Eastern Cape Isikosa singer-songwriter, a kind of a lyrical folk, mystical music. And as, as a teenager, I was obsessed with South African traditional music, so Mbakanga and Isikatamia and Marabi. And, um, and I used to go after school to... Claremont to the back streets and try and find find records in little record stores. Build vinyls. Yeah, yes, vinyls. And so this is a contemporary version of the kind of stuff I was listening to 30, 40 years ago. I love this guy's music.
Justin Bongaziwe Mabandla was the performer there, wasn't he? And a piece called Undoku Landela. Another choice, actually, of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Justin Fox. And we're talking about his new book, Place, South African Literary Journeys. But before we get back to the book, because there are a couple more chapters I want to ask you about. I mean, we could spend a whole day going through all these authors because they're terribly famous. Is How did you get into travel? What I mean... So you were the editor of Getaway, so travel must have been important to you for a long time in your life. My parents took me to Greece in 1973 when I was six years old, and we had a, a summer on the islands of Santorini and Patmos, and that kind of changed my life. I've Ever since then... And you were six, only six? I was six, wow. and it, it was so transformatory, and I fell so in love with islands and boats and being and traveling with my family, that um, ever since then, I've always hankered after travel. And for years and years after that, I always wanted my parents to take me back to Greece. And I suppose my whole career has been a case of take me back to Greece in, in a metaphorical kind <laughs> yes, of way. Okay. Um, and so you launched yourself once you were an adult. Did you into travel writing? Yeah, I did my doctoral thesis at Oxford on islands in literature with the surreptitious hope that I would be sent to islands <laughs> to do, do research. research. None, yeah. none of that worked out, but then I joined Getaway Magazine soon after that as a junior journalist and had spent, oh, probably 15 years on the beat traveling around Africa every month, a different place, but constant, constant travel. And then you went up to editor. Yeah, eventually editor and then freelancer and then all along the way writing books about travel, either novels or literary travel books or coffee table books or I even did a poetry book on travel. I did a children's book on travel. But you can see that there's a singular theme that runs through all of (laughs) them. I can see that definitely. But I just want to go away from place just for a moment because I think the book before that was, was called The Cape Raider, Jack Pembroke Naval Adventure. Now, this is the other side of you, isn't it? Although it still involves the war and the sea and ships. Yes. So we spoke a little while ago about my passion for the Second World War, and that mm. has played out in what is now becoming a series of novels. The The Cape Raider is book one, and they are Second World War novels set in Simonstown uh, around a, a Royal Navy lieutenant who ca- who's come out from England to serve on a minesweeper in, in Simonstown. And in book one, he has to fight a German raider, a powerful German ship that attacks the Cape and is laying mines off Cape Agullis and off Saldana Bay. And the climax of that tale is Jack taking on the Nazi Hun on the high seas. <laughs> uh, and book two is him taking on a, a German uh, wolf pack, U-boats, at, arriving at the Cape. And that book has just released recently in England. Which is called? The Wolf Hunt. You've got a quote here in this book from Winston Churchill, who spoke about, as you said, these minesweepers and how difficult. And he says... A peculiar danger and one calculated to try the strongest nerves because of the silence and constant uncertainty of destruction 
in which those who engage in it must dwell. So is it like a, a yarn, a real novel? It's a traditional naval adventure yarn. Um, completely fictional. Completely fictional. But all of it set around Cape Town, Musenberg, Simonstown, UCT, Kelvin Grove. And for that, I dipped into, I dipped into the histories of my family, my mother going to the dances, my aunt going to the, the Admiralty House to meet the young lieutenant. So it's, it's all based resolutely on fact, but all the characters and most of the ships are fictionalized. Were you born in Cape Town? Born and bred, yes. Born and bred, okay. So the sea has always been there, and when you came in for the interview now, you said you've just been windsurfing or whatever it was. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> I, I'm a windsurfer and a surfer, and if there's wind in Cape Town, then all writing is abandoned instantly. <laughs> Gosh, but you're clearly quite disciplined as an author has to be because now if I ask you what your business is, you're a writer. You don't work for anybody at the moment. I'm a writer and I'm trying to live off writing books, which is a thankless task. And so I still dabble in a little bit of travel journalism. I take that over uh, as much as I can, but I'm primarily writing books. And we're enriched by that, especially this one place, which we're going to come back to now after Leonard Cohen. Tell me about the choice and why. Yes, this is a, a song, Who by Fire, which is very pertinent to this time that we're living through at the moment. It's a Hebrew prayer that has been adapted by Leonard Cohen, and it is normally a prayer at the time of Yom Kippur, which we have just experienced. And it's a prayer of atonement. And Leonard Cohen spent a bit of time in Israel in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War singing to the troops. And this song comes out of that time. And given what we're going through as a planet and what is happening in Palestine at the moment, I thought this was extremely pertinent. And for me, Leonard Cohen is one of the great poets of music. And if I'd been dishing out Nobel Prizes, I might not have given it to Mr. Bob Dylan. I might have swung at Leonard <laughs> Cohen's Leonard way. Cohen. Okay. And who by fire? Who by water? Who in the sunshine? Who in the nighttime? Who by high ordeal? Who by common trial? Who in your merry, merry month of May? Who by very slow decay? And who shall I say is calling? And who in her lonely slip? Who in these realms of love? Who by something blood? Who by avalanche? Who by powder? Who for his greed? Who for his hunger? And who shall I say? say the distinctive sound of Leonard Cohen there, Justin, and that song, Who by Fire, and another choice of my guest, the author, Justin Fox, I'm going to call you an author from now on, 
And we're talking mostly about your book, Place, which is your latest book. We also spoke briefly just now about the Cape Raider, a Jap Pembroke naval adventure, which you've now made me want to read. But I still need to get through Place because what I've read so far, I've so enjoyed. And the, uh, the other one I want to talk about, by the way, is Zeke Imdar's Wild Coast. Why the Wild Coast? Did he write about the Wild Coast? First of all, he grew up in the Eastern Cape, so he's a, he's a real as Eastern Cape boy. And his wonderful novel, The Heart of Redness, is set just north of the Kai River uh, in a little town called Kolocha. It's a novel, a contemporary novel, but that looks back to the great cattle killing of the mid-19th century, beautifully evocative of that period and of the contemporary wild coast. And he's able to capture the flora and the fauna and the topography and the seascapes in a most beautiful way in that novel. So that was a, a wonderful way for me to engage with the Far Eastern Cape and find a text that was both a beautiful piece of writing, but also captured landscape in a particularly evocative way. And did it work for you? I mean, when you were there, the Wild Coast, we know as a very, well, wild, unkempt sort of place. After the Western Cape Coast, it is my favorite strip of coast in South Africa. I absolutely love that stretch all the way up to Coffee Bay, up to Port St. John's. have been going there since I was a kid, used to surf some of those spots. Um, and you haven't discovered the Waratah yet? I have not, not yet. <laughs> That's another <laughs> Still story. Still looking. <laughs> yeah. That's another story. Sorry, I interrupted you, Justin. No, so for me to go back and spend time on that coast using Zaxum Dyer as my medium was, was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But then you also go to the Cedarburg with Stephen Watson. Now, Stephen Watson is a name I don't really know. Forgive St me. Stephen is a poet, so the, that deals more. That's the only chapter in the book that deals with poetry and not so much with a novel or a, or a, or a longer text. Stephen was a, he was uh, the head of the creative writing department at UCT, and he was my lecturer as an undergrad and a bit of a mentor later, and then he became a friend. And I absolutely love his poetry, and most of it is actually about the Cedarburg. He manages to capture those rock formations and that the light and the texture and the feelings and the smells of those mountains in a most unique way. And many writers have tried to do it, and many writers have done it really well. Brayton Breidenbach, Jan Rabi, C. Louis Leipold, Stephen Watson. These are all writers that have been captivated by the Cedarburg. But I thought that Stephen's poetry evoked them in a particular way that that appealed to me. And he also harks back to the romantic tradition of Wordsworth and Coleridge, which I'm also particularly interested in. And he used to go to a little hut at Cromrefeer every year. He spent months there um, during university holidays. So I went and stayed in the hut next door to the one that he <laughs> oh, stayed gosh. in with a pile of, of books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went back a few times to try and completely immerse myself in those beautiful mountains. And did he, Stephen Watson, inspire you to write poetry or were you already writing poetry? I was already writing poetry as an undergraduate, but I remember going and knocking on his door in first year as a f with my little wad of poetry <laughs> and handing them to him terrible stuff. And he read them and he was very generous and encouraging and so on, although the poems were absolute rubbish. But um, he did encourage me and he, and he did become a mentor. And yes, so he and I engaged over a 25-year period around... Oh poetry and landscape. Have you had poets, poems published? Yes, I have. I, I have. I do publish occasionally in, in the small magazines like New Contrast and Stanzas, and I have one slim volume called Beat Roots, which is out. Okay. Justin, we have to wrap up now, but the other thing I wanted to say about the book place is that you've got maps. Um, although you said you went <laughs> just with a pile of books, but for the uninitiated, you've got maps to guide them through what you did on this epic journey that you did. So thank you very much for coming and chatting to us, and best of luck for this book. I know it's going to be hugely successful. The angle is so unusual that I think it's going to appeal to people and actually introduce these great writers to a new generation. Don't you think that's possible? You, you implied that that's what you wanted to happen. I did. I hope, I hope it does. I hope it encourages people to... Go to these landscapes and read these books. Good. And your last piece of music, The Cure, isn't that a rock group from <laughs> – what is that? <laughs> yeah, The Cure, 1980s. Uh, I was a DJ on UCT radio in the late 80s, and I would always try and slip – it was my favorite band of that era, and tr uh, you always used to try and slip The Cure into every show. And when I eventually got to England in 1991, I went to a Cure concert. I went, got on the bus from Oxford, and it was – it blew my head off. I was completely <laughs> transfixed. It's kind of dark melancholy kind of funereal pop music okay so this is called plain song
Okay, so there you are. That's going to end our program. Justin Fox, thank you very much. Thank you, Rodney.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.